to be back with you this week. I'd much rather be here last week than in bed as I was, but I'm grateful for those who are willing to step in, uh, Brandon, for covering on short notice. Um, This morning we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 26, so go ahead and turn there. We're working our way through the entire book of Acts, which is Luke's second book, so it's going to take us a while, obviously, but I hope that as we continue through this, we're going to be growing, each of us, and together corporately in our desire to live in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think the text today is a good reminder for us in that. So to catch us up really quickly, remember that life in the church, the kingdom of God, is beautiful here in the beginning of Acts. People are living out the work of the Spirit in their lives as they love each other, as they count others more significant than themselves. It's a beautiful image of what life was always intended to be like and also of the hope we have to that end through Christ. Christ Jesus who lived the perfect life on our behalf and invites us into that life. Christ who died and was raised for us. And in the midst of all of that in this beginning story in Acts is the terrible reminder of brokenness, of self-centeredness, and manipulation that's displayed through Ananias and Sapphira. But even after that, we see how God is moving in magnificent ways through the church and how people are coming to know Him, entering this life with Him more and more. And so that's where we're picking up today. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read verses 17 through 26 of Acts chapter 5. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. And when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Grace and mercy that we see in Jesus as we look at your word. Grace and mercy that we see around us that you have poured out on us in so many ways. Lord, we want to know you. So we pray that you'd help us in this time, Lord. Help us in our hearts. We're so prone to distraction. We're so prone to 
our thoughts wandering to other things, Lord, but we pray that you help us to lean into who you are and to you, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. The other thing I want to remind us of, the thing that we need to remember from the previous weeks and, and where we have come so far in Acts, is the Sadducees, the religious leaders, have warned the disciples to stop talking about Jesus. No more talk about Jesus. They didn't like that for multiple reasons. They absolutely did not believe that Jesus could be the Messiah, and they had killed Him. And now they're being called out for that. People are are standing before the masses saying that Jesus is now alive and that they're to blame for His death. They thought they were protecting the law of God, but they were protecting themselves, or at least trying to protect themselves. Verses 17 and 18 of our text, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. You can feel the tension in these verses, like someone reaching their boiling point or, or a group of people reaching their boiling point. That's it. Right? It's that level of, we're done with this. The high priest rises up. He's ticked. The rest of the Sadducees with them. They have to do something about these people who won't listen to them. They've warned them. But they won't listen. And it says they were filled with jealousy. Now, I think N.T. Wright is is helpful here, helping us to understand the context and the depth of what this means, the the choice to, to translate this as jealousy here. But he says, they were filled with righteous indignation. That word is often simply expressed as zeal, but zeal to a first century Jew didn't just mean what it means to us. With us, it means a fervent, enthusiastic approach to whatever is going on. A baseball coach makes a zealous attempt to enthuse the team. A politician becomes very zealous for a particular reform she's, camp, uh, she's championing, and so on. But with first century Jews, zeal had a very specific meaning. It was zeal for the honor of God. It often meant zeal for the purity of the temple and the land, and particularly in the case of the Pharisees, as we'll, as we'll see with Uh, Saul of Tarsus, it meant zeal for the law. Now, here's the thing. These people, the ones who disagreed and opposed the apostles and followers of Jesus, they all knew or they all believed that God is a holy God. They believed that God called Israel to be set apart as a nation, to be holy, to be distinct. And they were guardians of that, of how the people were to be set apart, gathered around the symbols of the temple, the land, the law, and family identity. 
they saw what these apostles were doing and teaching as challenging them. They didn't, they didn't recognize Jesus as the one who had been promised throughout all of the Scriptures. One promised to come and fulfill all of those things. And so anything or anyone who challenged the symbols had to be resisted with a righteous indignation, or as the ESV has chosen to translate it, with a jealousy. And that's what moves them to do something here. And so they go and they arrest the apostles, probably as they're teaching in Solomon's portico. It's likely, in light of the fact that we see later in the text, that even in their anger towards the apostles, they're cautious because they don't want the people to respond and harm them. And so they, they take them gently, and they put them in public jail. It seems here as if they arrest all of the apostles, not, no longer just Peter and John, but they gather them all and put them in the jail. And verse 19 continues, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Now, this is amazing. In the middle of the night, the doors of the prison are opened. An angel comes in the middle of the night, opens the doors, and brings them all out. It's as if God is saying here, no, these doors will not be locked to the kingdom of God. Now, now listen, again, we don't want to take this verse and use it as a proof text for how God works when Christians are opposed. This is descriptive of this particular circumstance, but not all circumstances. Remember, what we, what we saw a couple of weeks ago. Yes, the apostles are let out of prison here, but later James will not be let out of prison. And Paul eventually will sit in prison for years. But we rejoice in what the Lord does here. We don't make it a, a rule. We don't make it something that we we would take and say, well, this is what God will do if you are opposed in any way. We don't do that, but we rejoice in what He's done. It's amazing. And then we see that there's a purpose in this deliverance and bringing them out of the prison. Verse 20, and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. I think this is incredible. And we're going to get through all of the text, but this verse is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all of the words of this life. Now, first off, remember that that's exactly why they're in jail. They're there because they've been speaking openly about Jesus. And yet we find that there's no hesitation from them here. 
They actually want to continue to fulfill this mission that God has given to them. When the Spirit comes, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But let's consider what they're told to do here. Go and stand in the temple. Now, that alone is a risk, right? Go back to the place where you were arrested. Go back to the place where you were opposed. And do what led to your arrest. It's incredible. I mean, just, just from that alone, we can, we can see God's approval of what they've been doing. Yes, there have been miracles and stories of many, many people being rescued through the message of the gospel, but here also God demonstrates His, his approval of what they're doing. Go back, stand in the temple, and speak to the people. Go and tell them. They're told to go and keep telling the people, keep speaking words about Jesus. Keep proclaiming the good news of the gospel. The gospel is a message. The word gospel means good news or good story or good message. And so it involves words. It's something to be spoken. You're probably familiar with the words that are attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Where he says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Well, we're going to we'll get to more of the point of what he probably means by that, if it's, if, if it's him who said it. But to begin, first and foremost, it, it involves words. Whether spoken or read, go and speak the good news. Go and tell the good news. Go and proclaim the good news. News is news. It has to be spread by words or messages some means of communication. And so they're told to go and speak to the people, keep telling them. But there's more to what the angel says. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. All the words of this life. I think that's an incredible statement. Go and speak to the people all of the words of this life. The gospel is good news. It's a message to be proclaimed. But Christianity, Christianity is not simply a message. There is a message. They're told to speak words. So there's absolutely a message. The gospel is a message. It must be announced. But notice they're told to speak all the words of this life. Life. Not just something to hear and believe. Something to live. 
And I want us to consider what that means. What is it that these disciples are commanded to speak about? What was their message? What was it that they're describing? What kind of living, what kind of life is it that they're describing? I mean, it's an interesting choice of words, right? Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people the words of this life. At this point in the church, in the early church, this movement isn't really defined by a name yet. They're not called Christians yet. That happens much later in chapter 11. It's also after this that the movement is referred to as the way. But as far as we know, there isn't any identifying name yet for this movement. And here is really the first identification or description of it. But we don't see it again. Speak to them all the words of this life. That wording, to me, says that not only are words that are spoken describing what had happened in and through Jesus Christ, but what was happening now through Jesus Christ. You know, Peter writes in his first letter in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 15, he says this, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now when Peter writes that, it seems that he is presuming that people are asking or, or will ask sometimes why followers of Jesus have such hope. Why are you so hope-filled? And it, it's in, in, important to understand that Peter is writing his letter to believers who have been dispersed because of persecution. They're suffering for Christ. And he says that in the midst of that persecution of being exiled. In the midst of that persecution and difficulty that they experience, some people sometimes are going to ask, why are you so hopeful? And they're to be ready to give an answer for why they're hopeful. And so what is it? What is this life that they are to speak about? What does this life in Christ look like? 
And I think the answer is simply life in Christ. What life looks like when we're immersed in Jesus. We live in a time and in a culture where among conservative Christians in particular, the narrative of Jesus is being written, and I don't think this is new, this has been happening for decades now, but the narrative is one where Jesus, or the life of Jesus, is one of warrior. This conquering King Jesus who came as a real man and a real warrior. And I want us to consider, is that what this angel is saying to these apostles? Is that really the Jesus of the life that he's saying, go and show them, proclaim to them? Not at all. Even if you want to take the incident of Jesus turning over tables and chasing people out of the temple, at some point, there's a time where we have to say, why did he do that? And who is he going after? And the answer to that is the religious people. The religious elite, the religious people who were not receiving the poor, who were making a mockery of the life that he actually brought, the life that he actually lived. Jesus came in the most humble way, and he lived the most humble life. In the Sermon on the Mount, as he speaks to his followers, he tells us how to live as a part of that kingdom, the life that is his kingdom, life that is self-giving, life that is humble, life that is mercy and grace, accounting others as more significant than ourselves. And it's certainly not that he says that to us, you do this as obedient to him, who is this tyrant king who will enforce that kind of living. No, he's saying, live the life that I've invited you into with me. The one that I have lived on your behalf, which you have seen in me live. The life that wasn't possible before me, I give to you. This life that we see in Jesus. I mean, just picture Jesus. The Jesus that's presented to us in the Gospels. Picture Jesus. Do that. Picture Jesus. This Jesus, this life that they're to tell people about, this life that we've been invited into in Christ is one where there is love. Where the least are considered an equal part. Where captives are set free. Where the poor are seated with the rich. Where the outcasts are invited in. 
where immigrants are fed at the table with everyone else, where Jesus is the center and everyone wants others to see him and know him, where women are protected and cherished, where the lost are loved, where Jesus is truly king. And it's glorious. And it's joy. It's peace. It's life like that of the early church where there was joy and self-giving. It's life that's bound up in the resurrection life of Christ. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Remember in John 6 when Jesus teaches and all of those people that are disciples of him, many of the disciples left him. And he asks those closest to him, do you want to leave also? Remember what Peter says? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where would we turn? Where would we go? What would we want other than you? What we have seen and experienced in life with you? You have the the words of eternal life. That's the glorious beauty of this life offered to us in Christ. It's not temporary. It's forever, it's eternal, it's everlasting life, and therefore it should reflect by His grace and Spirit what life forever is to be like. Scott McKnight comments here, communion with God means sharing the immortal and imperishable life that is part of His very own essence. The gospel is the good news that the life of God is available to all through faith in Christ Jesus. That's good news. So I'd ask you, what would you say? What would you say to describe life in Jesus? What would you say to describe the life of Jesus? Not only his death and resurrection, which are paramount, but how he lived for us and before us and what it looks like to live the life that he's called us into with him. The text continues, verse 21 And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I love that. They go right away. The first opportunity, right as daybreak happens, when when people would be coming, they come too. They don't hesitate. There's no, is this a good idea? Continues 
Continuing verse 21, now when the high priest came, those who were with him and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. As all this is happening, the religious leaders are are being gathered again together. They want to address these rebels that they put in prison for talking about Jesus. And so they, they call for them to be brought before them. But the jail is unlocked. Or when it is unlocked, which is a a beautiful statement in the midst of it. The jail is locked. The angel lets them out and then locks the door again. When the jail is unlocked, they're not there. And so they go and give the report. Jail's locked. They're gone. Nobody inside. In verses 25 and 26, and someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. These leaders are confused. They're wondering what in the world this could mean. Now, at some point, I know my own flesh, okay? So I know what I'm saying is ridiculous here. But you, you reading it from our perspective here, you would think at some point, you would stop and say, well, they couldn't have escaped. The door's locked. How did they get out? Maybe this is one of those miracles. What does that mean? Maybe God's on their side. You would think there would be a question around that at some point. There's not. They go and get the apostles and bring them back again. It says they do it without force because they're afraid of what the people might do to them. Now again, we don't read into that. That's, that's their worldview. We don't take from that that the people would have done something to them. There's no evidence in the text before this. There's no evidence after this that at any point people rise up to fight or throw stones at or do any other violent thing to the political leaders over them. That believers at any point do that. There's nothing that would cause us or even these religious leaders to think that except that that's what the religious leaders would have done. And so they project that onto the followers of Jesus. But that's not the life that the apostles have taught them. Because that's not the life that they've learned from Jesus. 
It's not the life that they have lived. We've seen that. It's not the life that they're to proclaim. It's not the kingdom that he brings and reigns over with mercy, love, benevolence, and grace. It's not life in Jesus to live that life. We're going to go into a time where we take the Lord's Supper together today. As we prepare to do that, I want us to to truly consider our love for others. Jesus says, you've heard it said that it You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. As I think about my legacy in life, I think of one thing every time, my boys. That's what matters to me. And I could give you a list of things that I don't want them to image in me as my legacy. There are some things that I hope for There's some things I hope they emulate. And there are things that I hope they don't. But what Jesus is saying here is when we love even our enemies, when we love those that the world, even those that that classify themselves as religious, hate, we are imaging our Father. We are displaying His legacy. We are showing what He is like. That's what Jesus means when He says that. So that you may be sons of your Father, Because that is what your father is like. Jesus offers us life. Life. And he holds these elements, the bread and the cup, to us saying, come, take, eat, and live. Because coming and taking these elements, coming and getting the bread and the cup and and taking it is a proclamation. It's a proclamation that you believe. That we believe the words of this life. That His body was broken for us. That His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. That He is alive and coming again. And that He is our benevolent King who would do such a thing for us.
pray, Father, we love you and we thank you. We praise you, Jesus, for who you are. And we praise you for how you lived before us and for us so that we might know how to live. And Lord, I want that. I want that for us that we would delight in the person of Jesus and what you really were like. The love and the grace and the benevolence, the mercy that flowed out of you, the tenderness that you were, that others would come to you, even those who were rejected by everyone else. And you welcomed them. Lord, would you help us to be people who love the way that you love? We confess, Lord, it is hard for us. We are people who are prone to wanting to get even. We want to separate ourselves from those that are not like us, those we don't like. We need you, Lord, to change our hearts to mold us more into the image of who you are. So help us. And even as we come to receive the bread and the cup and we sing together and then eat of it together as your people, help us to truly proclaim we believe that your body was broken for us and we believe that your blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins and unite our hearts together in the truth of that good news of the gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.